All right, we will be in Isaiah again this morning. My schedule in the bulletin is probably going to be need to be tinkered with from time to time, but next week John will be here. He will be doing at least the first part of Isaiah chapter 51. Technically, I kind of did the last half of Isaiah 51 when we did Isaiah 52. So depending on how it goes next week, uh, the week after John, I may not be feeling like I need to wrap up any of Isaiah 51 and we'll just move back to the 40s, the chapters that we skipped. So in Isaiah, I've already told you, it represents the Bible as a whole. Uh, There's 66 chapters, there's 66 books of the Bible. There are the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, which kind of correspond to the 39 chapters of, or the 39 books of the Old Testament. And then there are 27 follow, you know, chap, the second group of chapters in Isaiah, which kind of correspond to the New Testament. So one of the things that we find in Isaiah, since it represents the Bible as a whole, we find great unity because the Bible is a united book. There, whether Old Testament or New Testament, we're not talking about two different gods. Uh, on Saturday, I usually put to, is when I put together the PowerPoint, and depending on what I'm searching uh, for, so far as images or references, one of the things I saw searching yesterday was the old saying or the old misconception, the old error that why is the God of the Old Testament so different from the God of the New Testament? And that is completely wrong. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. There is no difference. The same character of God, both in righteousness and holiness and purity, is the same God of mercy and love and grace. It's the same God. And that's uh, one of the other things that I heard explained really well when I was at a Lincoln Christian University, the idea that all of, the, all of the anger and all of the wrath and the justice you see in the Old Testament, where is it in the New Testament? It's at the cross. It's at the cross. That same God of wrath and justice poured that out on one individual, his son, at the cross. It's not absent. It's there at the cross. So, because Isaiah represents the Bible, there is great unity in this book. What that means is that we find in Isaiah, there is one God who is known as the Lord. And I'm feeling a little echoey up here, and it may just be my, I don't know if I've got, you've got reverb on for me back there, but I'm not a rock guy. Well, I am, but not on Sunday morning. So there's one God, the Lord. Let's, uh, if you've got your Bible, let's, let's look at a few of these passages really quick. I think they're important. These are the passages I take Jehovah's Witnesses to. Uh, when we are discussing who the Lord is and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, I take them to passages like this. So I'm going to read through these really quick. And it's a major point of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4 reads, Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I the Lord, the first and with the last, I am He. Chapter 42 and verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Chapter 43, verse 11. These are all references we've already looked at in Isaiah. 43:11. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. 
If Jesus is your Savior and he's not the Lord, then we've got, we've got somebody telling a lie. Either what the verse I just read or Jesus is in fact the Lord God. He is part of the triune God. Chapter 44, verses 6 to 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it, and you are my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. Chapter 45, verses 5 and 6. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Still in chapter 45, verses 21 to 23. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior, and there is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. This is a major theme in Isaiah. There is one Lord God. One Lord God, whether we're talking Western civilization, whether we're talking Eastern civilization, whatever people group we're talking about, whatever language we're talking about, it's not every group gets to decide and call God by whatever name they choose. There is one Lord God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One Lord God is a theme in Isaiah. Second theme, based upon this first theme, is there is one salvation. There is one Savior. There is one Redeemer. I'm not following the Christian way to God as if there are other equal ways to God. There is one way to God. It's through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one salvation. It's found in His one sent Son who died on that one cross over 2,000 years ago. Actually, not quite 2,000 years ago. But there's one Lord, one God, one Savior, one salvation. Uh, in, in Good News Club, our theme verses, the original theme verses were just Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. So if the kids want to say it with me, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. I'm going to stop right there. Now that we build on that. But those verses are teaching one God, one salvation for everyone who believes. That's the power of God. But don't miss first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. That's also a theme in Isaiah. That's a theme not just of Isaiah, that's the theme of Scripture. Old Testament, New Testament. 
It's a theme in Genesis. It's a theme in Revelation. Salvation is for the end of the earth, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. The Lord intends to bless all nations through Abraham, and by extension, through Israel. And I say that because it's not just being a child of Abraham. Abraham had more than one child. But it was his promised child, the the son of Sarah, his wife. His name was Isaac. But it's not just Isaac, because Isaac had two sons. But the Lord set his favor upon Jacob, not upon Esau. And then Jacob became the father of 12 sons, known then as the 12 tribes of Israel. And it is through Israel that blessing comes to the nations. Because the Lord promised Abraham, in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. First for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. In in chapter 43, verses 10 and 12, chapter 44, verse 8, it's very clear. Israel, the Lord tells Israel, you will be my witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses, that's their verse. There's like, we're his witnesses. No, Isaiah's not talking about you, the cult. It's talking about Israel, the nation. Israel, the nation, is the Lord's witnesses to the gospel that there's only one Lord and salvation is in his name alone. That's Israel's job. That's what they were tasked with. They are his witnesses. In chapter 44, 21 to 23, chapter 45, uh, verse 14, 20 to 26, chapter 52, verse 10, those are all verses we've already looked at. We see the nation celebrating salvation in Israel. Because it's first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And as Israel is brought into a saving relationship with the Lord, all the nations experience that salvation by extension because salvation is of the Jews. It's through Israel. Not, they're not saved by Israel. They're saved through Israel. Through the promise given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Through the promise given to Israel, the nation. So that's how the plan looks. That's how it's supposed to look. But the problem is Israel is blind. The nations are in deep water because Israel is hardly going to bring them the gospel. They're hardly going to convey rightly the message there's only one Lord God and there's only one salvation. They themselves are blind and deaf. Last week I introduced you to the theme of the servant songs. There are four clearly identified servant songs in Isaiah. We've looked at three of those, including the fourth. Today we look at the third. The fourth is contained in the end of Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. We looked at that on Good Friday. Uh, So we actually skipped ahead. But today we look at the one we have not looked at, which is in Isaiah chapter 50. And in these servant songs, again, what we find out is the original servant of the Lord is Israel. They're called the servant of the Lord. We're going to read that in just a moment. This scripture reading that's in your bulletin. The one side was the song. The other side is a a select group of scriptures all talking about the mission of the servant of the Lord. And what you will see is that the original mission is given to the nation. But the nation is blind and deaf. So the There's a transference that takes place so that Israel, the nation, is no longer the servant, but now an individual stands in for the nation to be the servant. 
And we know him as Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. He takes the place and assumes the responsibility given to Israel, the nation, to be the servant that will bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So another servant takes the place. On this handout, it's actually color-coded for you because there are, uh, you will see the progression. You will see how, how these complementary insights go together, what was tasked to the nation, what is given to the individual. And I'm just going to have volunteers read. I will get you started. It starts off, But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, You whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corner, saying to you, You are my servant, I have chosen you, and not cast you off. And then let's read the last verse all together. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. So in this, in these references, what you see is Israel is tasked with bringing forth justice to the nations. And the coastlands are waiting for his law. But the problem is Israel, the servant, is blind and deaf. And so in verse, in the middle part of that sheet, chapter 49, verse 1, A stand-in servant who takes the place calls to those coastlands, those same places that are waiting for good news of salvation, those same far remote places that are waiting to know something about the Lord who created the heavens and the earth, they are given good news. You don't have to wait on Israel because they're blind and deaf. Somebody is standing in for Israel who will bring salvation to you. And he will do it rightly and justly and perfectly. That servant is the Messiah Jesus. And he will do what Israel failed to do. And there's this great juxtaposition between Israel's failure and Messiah's success. In all ways that Israel failed to obey Lord in a covenant relationship, Messiah will succeed. And the Lord's plans of redemption will be accomplished through this individual who takes the place. Uh, It's a fascinating story as we're working out this drama in Isaiah. What we ended on was a very good note, chapter 49 and verse 13, where salvation, uh, the the Messiah, the stand-in servant, not only is going to restore Israel and Jacob to the Lord... Not only that, but he also will be a light to the Gentiles. He will bring salvation not only to Israel, but to the Gentiles, to the isles, to the far coastlands. Salvation in the name of the Lord will be proclaimed, and it will be accomplished through his person and through his work. So we ended on this terrific note. This is uh, uh, the type of verse that joy to the world is based on. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let heaven and earth rejoice. Far as the curse is found, this gospel is going to restore what was lost by sin. That's the celebration in verse 13. But then the next thing that happens in chapter 49, which we're going to do at the end of 49 as well. We've got a lot to do today. But what happens next is the focus is taken off all that God has promised, all that God has revealed to accomplish in the person of his servant, 
in his son, the focus goes back to Israel and, and they're struggling. And promises are good for down the road, maybe someday, but where they're at right now, they don't see it. They don't see the goodness of the Lord. They don't think there's any cause or reason to celebrate. So verse 14 starts off this way. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My God has forgotten me. God's made all these wonderful promises regarding the servant of the Lord. It's too small a thing just to bring Jacob back. You're going to be a light to the Gentiles, a covenant to the people. And Zion says, where's the Lord my God? He's forsaken me. He's forgotten me. All seems lost so far as they're concerned. And so the Lord responds in the rest of the chapter, verses 14 to 26, there are basically three thrusts through those verses. First, the Lord will assure Jerusalem. By the way, Zion, the focus is on the city. Zion is a city specially chosen by God. I I printed off the references uh, that are found in the Old Testament. There are any number of references where out of all the cities of the earth, God has chosen Jerusalem as a city associated with his name. That's not any less true today than it was 4,000 years ago. Jerusalem is in some sense the apple of God's eye so far as cities are concerned. Jerusalem also represents the people. It represents Israel. It represents the tribe of Judah. But it's personified as the city itself. He assures the city of his love in verses 15 to 21. He assures the city of his promise in verses 22 to 23. And he assures the city of his power in verses 25 to 26. Let's re- let me read through these verses and we'll see what we find. Verse, uh, verse 16. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Now, we, we kind of know that verse because we sing a, a, a song about that. Before the throne of God above. Uh, my name is written on his hands. My name is written on his heart. That's a wonder, by extension, that's a wonderful truth. If you belong to God, your name is inscribed on the palms of, we'll say, Christ Jesus' hands. He will never forget you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Zion is saying, my God has forsaken me, left me. That original promise in verse 16 isn't to me as a Gentile. That original promise is to Jerusalem, to the people of Jerusalem. It's to Israel. The name that is inscribed in the original context is the name Zion on the Lord's hands. And the Lord says, I could no sooner forget you. Uh, It would be more likely for a mother to abandon her child than for me to abandon you. Your name is inscribed on my hand in verse 16. That's the original context. But it gets better than that because then a great reversal is described in the verses that follow. Verse 17. Because he's talking to a city. He says, your builders make haste, your destroyers and those who laid you waste go out from you. Now that, I don't know if you get the sense of what's taking place there. Let me read it to you from the New English translation. It reads this way. Your builders hurry back while those who destroyed you are devastated, while those who destroyed and devastated you depart. 
The Lord is saying, I'm assuring you of my love. Your name is inscribed on my hand. And there's coming a day where instead of people tearing you down, builders are going to be rushing into the city to restore everything. And those that have destroyed the city will be abandoning you. You're not going to be a city downcast, trodden down by Gentile nations. There's coming a day when things will be restored. That's the hope and the promise of verse 17. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them as a bride does. Verse 19. Surely your waste and your desolate places and your devastated land, surely now you will be too narrow for your inhabitants. And those who swallowed you up will be far away. The children of your bereavement will yet say in your ears, This place is too narrow for me. Make room for me to dwell in. Things are going to be so reversed. Jerusalem is going to be such a city of prosperity. It's going to be such a city of blessing for Zion's children, where all these Israelites are returning to their homeland, returning to the city which God chose as his special city, that then you will say, Zion will say in your heart, Who has borne me these? I was bereaved and barren, exiled and put away, but who has brought up these? Behold, I was left alone. From where have these come? Jerusalem right now is feeling forsaken and forgotten. They can't imagine a time of such blessing and prosperity. But the Lord says that day's coming. That day is coming when all of your children, you're going to have so many children, there's not going to be room enough for these children in Jerusalem. Then secondly, The Lord assures Jerusalem of his promise. Verse 22 starts off with this heading. Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples. And they shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Jerusalem is viewed as this city that says, where have all these children come from? And the Lord assures Jerusalem of his promise. They're going to be bringing your sons and your daughters back. Gentiles are bringing them back to you. Gentiles are participating in this great restoration, this great reversal of the Lord's favor upon Jerusalem, his chosen city. And then it says, a kind of a key point, that last verse in 23, then you will know that I am the Lord. And then there's that somewhat unfortunate phrase, those who wait for me shall not be put to shame, because we don't like to wait. The crux of the gospel is you have to wait to get all that the Lord has promised. But the promise of the gospel is while you may have to wait, those that wait for me will not be put to shame. You will not be left high and dry. Now, to some extent, we would say God's people, the kingdom of Christ in its uh, form in which it exists now, primarily through the church, we're waiting And the church is waiting for the Lord to fulfill all his plans of redemption and restoration will not be in vain. 
the church will triumph. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church because Christ has assured the church just like uh, the Lord assured Jerusalem of his promise to make all things new. And then... And then the Lord asks a question. He knows what Israel's thinking. And what Israel's thinking is in verse 24. What Zion is thinking is in verse 24. Zion says, Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? I mean, Zion looks at it and says, These are all wonderful promises, but it's not like the Gentiles are just going to relinquish Jerusalem. It's not like the Gentiles are just going to say, give up their power. It's not like the Gentiles are just going to back down, are they? And then the Lord responds with an assurance of his power in verse 25. Thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. First for the Jew, and then for the Gentile. It starts off at the end of verse 23. You will know I am the Lord. Those that wait for me shall not be put to shame. And then in saving and restoring Israel, then all flesh will know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. That's God's plan in Isaiah. It's spelled out time and time again. Salvation will go out to the ends of the earth, largely through Israel. Now, we don't see that taking place today. I get that. Paul addresses that in Romans chapter 11. The theology of Israel is in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Romans 9 discusses the theology of Israel past. Romans 10 describes the theology of Israel as we see Israel today. Romans 11 describes Israel of the future. And if blessing is extended to Gentiles now in Israel's blindness and hardness of heart and not receiving Christ as Messiah, what will it mean when, when Israel is a nation saved in a day? What rejoicing will that bring to Gentiles? That's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 11. So thus far, three fears have been addressed at the end of chapter 49. Number one, does the Lord love me? Has he forgotten or forsaken me? That's specifically Zion, but they're applicable applicable questions. We could ask those questions because there are times through life experience where we could ask, does the Lord love me? Does he see? Does he care? Has he forgotten to be merciful? And just like God assures Jerusalem of his promise, Christ assures the church of the same promises. I will never leave you or forsake you. I could never not care about my people. Second fear, will Jerusalem ever be restored? The promise is given. Jerusalem will be restored. Jerusalem will be restored in such a great way, it will be unlike any success Jerusalem has ever previously experienced. And then the third fear is, will the Lord deliver me from my oppressors? And the Lord says, oh, you'll be delivered all right. You think they've got a grip on you and and that you will never escape their power and that they will always trodden you down. Oh no, Jerusalem. 
there's coming a day where your enemies will be vanquished and they will, they will be on death's door themselves. And then all the nations of the earth will know that there really is only one Lord God. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that's where we are in chapter 49. But the most important question was a question that was never asked. Not in Isaiah chapter 49. And the most important question isn't, does the Lord love me? The Lord has assured them he's loved them. The most important question isn't, will Jerusalem ever be restored? The most important question is, will the Lord deliver me from my oppressors? The most important question that Zion could have asked is, how can God do this in light of my sin? How can God love me? When I keep going through these cycles of I say I love God, I say I'm going to walk in obedience to him, and yet I always fall away and I'm always entrenched in my own sin. How is God going to overcome me, not my enemies, me, my sin, my guilt, my shame? How does God overcome that problem? That's a question they don't ask. It's a question Isaiah answers. We see that question answered in Isaiah chapter 53 that the servant bears the sins of his people, but it's not a question that's asked in chapter 49. The Lord responds further in chapter 50. This time, he's not talking to Zion, Jerusalem, the city. Now he's talking to the exiles, Zion's children. The children of Zion have been scattered. They've been removed. At this time, they're going to go to Babylon, But uh, there are many other times in in history where the the children of Zion are scattered all across the globe. And now the word of the Lord, the word, now the Lord has a word for Jerusalem's children. It starts off like this. Chapter 50, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, where's your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I've sold you? Again, the Lord is, he knows exactly what they're thinking. And Jerusalem's exiles, the children are saying, well, God has forgotten us. Maybe God remembers Jerusalem. Maybe God's got a good plan for Zion. But so far as we're concerned, we've been abandoned. We're orphaned. God doesn't care about us. We've been, uh, he's divorced. We are divorced from him. Or we've been sold because the Lord had some sort of a debt. And so the Lord brings up these two questions and he says, okay, you're alleging, you're accusing me of divorcing your mother, Zion. Well, if I've divorced her, show me the certificate. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 24, if a man divorces his wife, he is to present her with a certificate of divorce and send her away. That's part of the process. You present her with a certificate of divorce. So if the Lord's being accused of divorcing Jerusalem... Israel, then show me the certificate. There is no certificate. There's nothing to present because he hasn't divorced her. Secondly, of which of my creditors is it to whom I've sold you? Show me the creditor. Who who am I indebted to that I would have to sell you off to and I no, no longer have a claim on you? The Lord has no creditors. He's not in debt to any person, any nation. The Lord has claim to Israel. He has always had claim to Israel. He's never relinquished claim to Israel. But there is a problem. There is a problem. The problem is in the second half of verse 1. Behold, for your iniquities you were sold. 
and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. There is a separation. It's not because the Lord owed somebody money and had to sell off Israel like in a pawn shop. It's not that the Lord uh, divorced Israel slash Jerusalem. The reason why the relationship is not what it's meant to be is your iniquities and your transgressions. I mean, let's be honest. Most of the time, or at least a lot of the time, when we are facing difficult circumstances, we look for somebody else to blame. Uh, there's a little proverb. I like it particularly the way the NIV renders it, and I didn't relook it up. It just occurs to me. It's something along the lines of how man rages against... Ah, oh, shoot. I think I know where it's at, though. I think it's Proverbs 19, maybe 20, and verse 3. Proverbs 19.3 says, When a man's folly brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. When a man's folly, in other words, it's my sin, my trespass, my foolishness, when it brings my way to ruin, my heart rages against the Lord. God, why could you let this happen? Well, it was your own folly. It's not that the Lord has forsaken me or forgotten me. It's not that my name is no longer inscribed on Christ's palm. The problem is my own foolishness. This is uh, the story of human history. There's a a popular book you've probably heard of. It It was written by Rabbi Harold Kushner entitled, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. This, uh, you can't read this, but it says, The inspirational number one bestseller, over four million copies sold. And our question is, How do we explain bad things happening to good people? Well, that's not hard to explain because there aren't any good people. R.C. Sproul actually has, I didn't put it up on the, I don't have a slide for it, but R.C. Sproul is the one I saw credited with saying, there was only one good person and he died on a cross. That was the only bad thing that happened to a good person. We are bad people and we experience a lot of good things, not because we deserve them, but because God is merciful. And because Christ propitiated the wrath of God, which is a wonderful doctoral study that I don't have time for, because propitiation doesn't bring anybody into the kingdom of God. But propitiation explains why it rains on the just and the unjust. Propitiation explains why we can enjoy our families and life experiences and so many good events because the Father's wrath is propitiated. doesn't take away sin. But his wrath is propitiated. So, how do we explain bad things happening to good people? Show me a good person and we've got a problem. But the Bible says there aren't any good people. So we really don't have a problem. But but, uh, the exiles to whom he's speaking think there's a problem because they don't see themselves as bad. And the Lord says, it's because of your own iniquities, because of your own transgressions. The truth, in fact is the Lord does not lack the ability or the willingness to save Israel. So in verses 2 and 3, they read like this. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their, their covering. The Lord says, 
It's not that I ceased being a powerful God, an all-powerful God. I sent prophets to you. I called to you. And you didn't answer. Because you were devoted to your own idolatry, your own sin, your own trespasses. The problem isn't on God's side. The breakdown of the relationship is on Israel's side. So what are we going to do about this problem? This is where the servant of the Lord comes in again. Chapter 50, verses 4 to 9. It's interesting if this, this song is a little bit different from the previous songs, is, it, is that the servant isn't named at the outset. But I know it's the servant of the Lord by the question that is asked in verse 20. So if I skip ahead for just a moment to verse, did I say 20? I meant 10. Chapter 50, verse 10 says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? So we're talking about a servant song. Now, here's what the servant says in verses 4 to 9. Let me read those verses for you. It goes like this. The Lord, well, actually, before I do that, let me show you what you're going to see, and then we'll look at it. What you're going to see is that this is all about a relationship between the Lord and the servant. It's all about a relationship that is cultivated, a relationship that Israel doesn't have. Israel doesn't have this relationship because of their transgression. Israel doesn't have this relationship because of their own sin. Israel doesn't have this relationship because of their hardness of heart, because of their blindness, because of their death, because of their idolatry. Israel, as the servant, doesn't have it, but this stand-in servant does. He's the exact opposite of Israel. Now let me read these verses. The servant says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. This servant has a perfect relationship with the Lord God of heaven and earth. And he responds the exact opposite of the, of the way Israel has responded through history time and time again. So, the Lord God is what drives this relationship. He's mentioned four times. Each one of those four times brings out an aspect of the relationship that the servant has with the Lord. So the first one is in verse 4. We find a discipled and a disciplined servant. Verse 4 again reads, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. By the way, that phrase, those who are taught, is one word in Hebrew. It literally could be translated disciples. It could read this way. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples. Because a a disciple is somebody who is taught. He's a learner. And the Lord God has given me uh, the tongue of a learner that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. 
He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. This relationship of uh, the servant being discipled by the Lord God and being disciplined morning by morning. Every day the servant gets up to know what, is the, what does the Father have for me today. I'm learning from, from what the relationship I have with my Father revealed through Scripture. I'm learning how to walk in paths of obedience. How to honor God my Father. The servant every day is cultivating this relationship. Not, he doesn't do this so that he can say, and you all are a bunch of rotten sinners, why aren't you more like me? Why does he learn all this? He tells you in verse 4, I do it that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. That word sustain means to carry a load. I'm learning my Father's will, not so that I can lord over what I know as opposed to what you don't know. I do it so that I can bear your burden. Because you're weary. Does that sound like something Jesus might have said? Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Where did he get that from? He can, he can offer that That wonderful comfort because he has been learning day by day by day, often in obscurity, the Father's will for him. He didn't come to condemn the world, but he came that the world through him might be saved. John 3, 16 and 17. Why do we learn what we do? If you have a little bit better grasp on Isaiah than what you had before, to what end? Just so that you have a little bit more knowledge about God's big plan of redemption? Or is God teaching you things that you would give a word of comfort to the weary? That you would extend good news of the gospel that God saves weary people. God forgives people who are weary of their sin and weary trying to work it out on their own and our only hope is in this servant who stands in for us. That's the first thing we learn about the servant. The second thing we learn about him in verses 5 and 6 is he's an obedient suffering servant. Now, when Israel, as a servant, faced adversity, they gave up on God. They're like, God doesn't care. He's forsaken. He's forgotten. He's divorced us. He's sold us off into slavery. But this servant, when he faces suffering, he's obedient. He turns not his back. He stays on task. He's committed to this relationship that he has with his father. Come what may, he's committed to this relationship. Thirdly, we find out he's a trusting and a confident servant in verses 7 and 8. In verses 7 and 8, the Lord God helps me. I've not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint. He is not deterred by adversity and by suffering. He sets his face like flint... Exactly what we read in Luke's gospel. He set his face to go to Jerusalem knowing he was going to die on a cross in Jerusalem. But he's the Lord's servant. He's going to bear the sins of his people. And so he sets his face like flint as a trusting, confident servant that I put my hope in my father. It will not be in vain. I will not be put to shame. He remains trusting and confident, the exact opposite of Israel. And he will accomplish what Israel couldn't. Finally, he's the vindicated servant in verse 9. Verse 9 reads, Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? 
Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Why should this servant be deterred by the likes of men who are all going to perish when in light of an eternity, in light of an eternal kingdom which will be brought to earth, why wouldn't I devote myself to that kingdom? That's this servant. He doesn't care if the devil offers him the entire world. What is a profit if a man gains the world and loses his soul? This servant remains on task. His hope is in the Lord God, his Father, and he is vindicated at the end. He does everything that Israel failed to do. It calls for a response in verses 10 and 11. These are verses I may come back to in a couple of weeks after John is here. Verses 10 and 11, this is the great application. It reads this way. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Now it's a call to the people of God to follow in the footsteps of this servant. Put your hope in this servant who walked in perfect paths of obedience. I'll read it again. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him walk, let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. There's that waiting part again. There's that not only waiting, but it's waiting in darkness to complete his plan. The alternative is in verse 11. It's introduced with a behold. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. You have two choices. Jesus taught about two choices all the time, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. Two choices, two paths, two trees, two houses. Which will it be? You can put your trust in this servant, his discipline, his obedience, his suffering, his his own trusting confidence, his vindication on resurrection morn, his vindication when he ascends to the right hand of the Father. You can put your hope in him, and you may be in darkness, It may not seem like it's working out. But if you put your hope in that servant, you will not be put to shame. Or you could light your own fires. You can try to figure out your own meaning to life. Maybe it's in in a great academic career. Maybe it's in a great, great career. Maybe it's in a big retirement. Maybe it's in all the things you can accumulate for yourself. Maybe it's in all your family. Life is about family, isn't it? Not to the exclusion of Christ. Whatever whatever you may put your hope in, God says, you light your fire and you'll lie down in torment because there's coming a day what whatever you think matters will be revealed for what it is. It doesn't matter. Not in the eternal scheme of things. It doesn't mean that they have no value. They do have value. Family has value. Whatever you can achieve, that has value as a gift from God, but not as a substitute for God. Those are wonderful verses of application. You know what? You know what faith in this servant is? The reason why we have faith in a servant is because of darkness. You don't need faith in the servant when the sun is shining brightly. You know, there's a story in the Gospels. You're familiar with it. Jesus gets in a boat. He's very tired. He says, put out. We're going to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus falls asleep in the boat. And you remember uh, the wind kicks up and the waves kick up and the disciples are struggling and they think they're going to lose their lives and they finally wake Jesus up and they're like, Master, don't you... It sounds like Jerusalem. We've been forsaken. 
We're forgotten. Don't you care that we perish? And Jesus says, do you remember what Jesus says? I think it's, it's in Luke's gospel. So Larry remembers this. It's in Luke's gospel. Jesus says, where's your faith? You don't need faith when it's smooth sailing. You don't need faith when any dummy can, can get the right amount of wind and go from one side of the sea to the other sea. It doesn't require great faith for that. You need faith for the storm. That's when you need the faith. That's when you need to trust in the servant. It's when it doesn't make sense. When darkness veils his lovely face, I trust on his unchanging grace. That's the message of Isaiah to Zion, to Israel, by extension to the church. When darkness veils his lovely face, I trust in his unchanging grace. What are your comments and questions? We covered a big passage, and I'm over time. But I made up, I mean, I took, I borrowed from last week. It's like rollover data data with your cell phone plan. If you didn't use it all the week before, it rolls over to this week. I had rollover data this week, but I set John up nicely for next week in chapter 51.